If you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning, Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 15. Find your way there, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would give us eyes to see its truth and that you would write its truth upon our hearts that we may be saved and that we may be more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully this past Monday you did your duty and paid your taxes. For some of us, it may have been a nice little boost in income, and for others of us, it might have been a moment of great anguish. We filled our taxes out early this year, and shortly after, we began getting these strange phone calls. Basically, it was a recording that told me I had four unresolved discrepancies on my taxes that needed to be resolved immediately or within 24 hours, local law enforcement would be at my door to arrest me. Two things happened. I never called them, and they never arrested me. Now, I know that this is a scam, because I'm not the only one who got the phone calls. Pastor Jeremy also got the phone calls. And either it's a scam, or you may have hired two tax-evading con artists I don't know, but obviously it was a scam. You can do your research and find out there's many of these kinds of things. And the scam was wanting me to conclude that somehow my taxes were not complete and had major errors in them. And for me to be right in the eyes of the government, I needed to call this number and give some personal information so that things could be right or else. And we think about that, and you think, well, you know, certain scams sound obvious. But there are thousands of people that get drawn into these kinds of things. Thousands of people who freak out and think, I don't want to be arrested. I'll call this number and give information, and next thing they know, not only is their tax refund gone, most of their bank account is gone. Well, the Colossians didn't have to deal with IRS impersonators, but they had what I would say an even greater problem. They were having to deal with false teachers. False teachers trying to convince them that they still needed something more than the gospel. That they needed a true spirituality. They were going to be right in the eyes of God. They needed something more than the gospel. So Paul's purpose was to write to them, to encourage them that the gospel that they had heard, the gospel that they had believed, probably through Epaphras, Paul's friend, was indeed the true gospel and that these new attempts to distort and confuse them were nothing more than empty, hollow shams. He called them empty or deceitful philosophies, as we saw from last week's passage. 
Paul's concern in his heart was to make sure that the believers in Colossae believed the true gospel and embraced the true gospel and stayed faithful to the true gospel. So I want to pick up this morning in Colossians chapter 2. I want to begin reading. I'm going to go back to verse 8, catch the context. But our focus this morning will be verses 11 through 15. This is what Paul wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceits, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, last week we we considered this warning that Paul gives in verse 8, that we should see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And we saw why we need to stand against the empty and deceitful philosophies of the day. We looked at the deficiency of these philosophies. We looked at the characteristics of these false teachings and these, these, these false spiritualities, we could say, and how they're human, they're demonic, and they're anti-Christ. They have no, nothing of Christ in them. And we saw then, in contrast, how Christ is sufficient because in, in, instead of these empty philosophies, we have in Christ the fullness of God who fills us. And so this morning, we're going to look further at how we are made complete by Jesus and why it is we need nothing more than Christ to fill us and to complete us because of who he is and ultimately what he's accomplished. We're just going to take a look at that this morning. I know we sang a lot this morning, but I can't think of any better thing to do than to celebrate the resurrection than to sing together and rejoice the fact that we have a risen Savior. We're going to take a few moments now, though, and we're going to look further at, at, the, at the fact that we are complete in Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater news or hope in the world Certainly no greater news or hope in the world than to celebrate this fact on Easter Sunday that we are made complete in Jesus Christ. That we need no other Savior. We need no other additional information added to the gospel. You need no other extra spirituality to tack on to the truth of who Jesus is. In Christ, you have everything you need. So what is it then that makes him sufficient to complete us? Last week we saw how in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. He's God in the flesh. This morning we're going to consider three other attributes or three other things that, that makes Christ sufficient to complete us. We see them here in verses 11 through 15. The first thing that we see from this passage that makes Jesus sufficient to complete us is the fact that we are united with Christ. 
We are united with Christ. I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. Paul is a master of using metaphors to describe aspects of the Christian life and of salvation. We know that from recent weeks he's used agricultural metaphors. He's used architectural metaphors. He's used legal terminology to describe and to explain all that we are and all that we've obtained in Jesus. And here in this text we see that he goes on to use a couple of other metaphor kinds of words to describe the reality that we have in Jesus. He uses circumcision and baptism. You're thinking, great, great thing to preach on Easter Sunday, pastor, is circumcision. We're not going to dive too deep into that, but I want you to see what he's getting at here. Notice the language that he uses. Speaking to the Christians in Colossae, and now by the Holy Spirit, speaking to us, he says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And he says of them having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. These are two things that, have, that, that Paul is using these two words. You were circumcised and having been baptized, having been buried with Christ in baptism. He uses the baptism and the circumcision to refer to the reality that the Christians had experienced. These are terms he's using. And so some have read this passage and they take circumcisions and baptism as the physical things that actually have been done. And that's not what Paul is talking about. Therefore, some have read this passage and concluded that baptism is now the replacement of circumcision that you find in the Old Testament, but that's not accurate. Paul says that believers are both circumcised and baptized. As he explains how both of these things have happened to the Christians already. Take a quick peek at circumcision here. An Old Testament practice that was to be a physical reminder that God's people were cut off from the world as God's covenant people. Also pointed to a deeper reality that their hearts needed to be set apart to love and follow him. We go all the way back to Genesis 17 where this practice was first started and how it served as a physical symbol of an inward reality that they needed. And while there was the Old Covenant practice of physical circumcision, both the Old Testament and New Testament speak of circumcision in a much deeper way. Honestly, the, the bulk of what we have in Scripture, Old and New Testament, refers to circumcision as a spiritual reality that the heart needs. You can see it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 12 through 15, imagery that God uses referring to circumcision, referring to God's disobedient people who were circumcised in their flesh but not in their hearts. They might have been marked as the people of God, but they weren't the true people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Again, you, you, you see in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 26, again, Paul, or excuse me, the Lord using this language in the Old Testament of how the heart is what really needs to be circumcised. It's a spiritual idea that we see. Paul also mentions this in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, where he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Well, then how does that happen? If Christians have had a circumcision of the heart, how does that come about? Well, it comes about by the circumcision of Christ. Again, this is terminology he's using here in this text. He says in verse 11, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. So your spiritual circumcision comes about by means of the circumcision of Christ, which is, again, powerful imagery, which included the sacrifice of the entire body of Christ. It's a metaphor for the death of Jesus. Your heart needs to be detached from the world. And the way that that comes about is by Jesus being cut off for your sake as he died on the cross for your sin. That's what Paul's saying here. That's the circumcision you need, a circumcision of the heart. When Jesus died, his bodily life was cut off for the purpose of redeeming us. But he also highlights baptism. Now again, when we think of baptism, we immediately think of the practice of baptism, but we need to see here that Paul is not comparing physical circumcision with physical baptism. He's not doing that. These are spiritual realities that he's referring to. So whereas circumcision points us to the death of Jesus on the cross, baptism points us to the new life we have in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Both are being used to describe the spiritual realities that have taken place in a Christian's life. So to have been baptized in Christ means simply that we died with him and we were raised with him. This, this, this thing that we call the union that we have with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Again, you see Paul's using this terminology to describe a spiritual reality. And while Paul is not referring here in Colossians specifically to water baptism, here you can see why the act of baptism by immersion is such a powerful image and symbol that we do as we receive the gospel by faith. You see it even here in the text, right? Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him, how? Through faith. Through faith. Paul is, again, pointing us here to what scholars have called our union with Christ. This idea of union with Christ is all over the New Testament. And yet it's something we speak very rarely of. I was even thinking this, this week, so Jeremy, you write this down and remind me, that it would be great to do a sermon series on the union with Christ. It'd be fantastic. And everybody's like all excited now about that, right? Think about that. Paul is pointing us to this, this, this union, the fact that we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection through faith. 
We are in Christ. Think about the number of times in the Bible you hear that phrase, in Christ, or Christ in us, or with Christ. It's all over the place, isn't it? It's going to be a long sermon series, I'm telling you. Think about that, that we were created in Christ. We are buried with him. We are baptized into his death. We are united with him in his resurrection. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ is formed in us, and the church is the body of Christ. Christ is in us, and we are in him all over the Bible. We see this terminology of how we, of this, this, this glorious union, this connectedness that we have with Jesus. It's a common theme throughout the New Testament, so much so Charles Spurgeon once said, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Brothers and sisters, our greatest need in this world is to be in Christ. And so when Paul uses this terminology of circumcision and baptism that's what he's getting at he's saying listen this comes about you need a change of hearts and that comes through the finished work of Jesus who was cut off for your sake so that you can be united with him in a death like his that you might be resurrected with him in a resurrection like his it's the life death and resurrection that secures our union and faith is the means by which you take hold of that so when you hear the, the gospel, when you hear the truth of what Jesus has done, you respond in faith. You take hold of that fact by faith. Faith is the power, faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And so if you're here today and you've not been following Jesus and you're thinking, I I need Jesus. I need to be in Christ. It's your greatest need is to be found in Christ. How can I be in Christ? You take hold of him by faith, by believing in the fact that he came and he lived a life of perfection. He died upon the cross for sin. He was raised again on the third day, demonstrating his power and victory over sin, death, and hell once and for all. And you take hold of him by faith believing and embracing and leaning on him, knowing that that's the only way you can be right with the holy God. Be united to Christ. There's a lot more we could say, but we'll move on. Second blessing or benefit that we have that makes Christ sufficient to be our Savior, that we need nothing more than him, is that we are forgiven by him. Verse 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, again, he's using uncircumcision now to refer, for speaking primarily to Gentiles, but again, he's using it as a term to describe their unregenerate state, the fact that they are outside of Christ. You were, he says, um, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice in verse 13, Paul identifies the true state of our spiritual condition. Listen, you and I, we, we are not simply just off spiritually. Paul says this multiple times in the scriptures. He says, you and I were dead in trespasses and sins. 
You weren't just off a little bit. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Devoid of any knowledge about your state before God and devoid of any power or ability to make yourself right before God. That's why it is a wasteful effort to try to somehow obey your way to the kingdom of heaven. You're dead. You can't do it. Entirely dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in keeping with the imagery of the resurrection, Paul explains exactly what God does in salvation. He takes dead people and he makes them alive. It's a miraculous work that God does. We call the new birth. God does this. In other words, God reverses the state we are in by providing a spiritual resurrection which is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus. Notice Paul doesn't look back to some ethical approach the Colossians had taken. He doesn't look back and say, you, you've, you've checked the box. You, you obeyed just like you should have. Therefore, you, got, you received this inheritance. You're now one of Jesus' people because you did so well. He doesn't say that at all. He said, you were dead, blind, deceived, outside, in darkness, and God made you alive. Brothers and sisters, this is a clear reminder that salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. It's so important that we get that. Unless we come to the awareness that we are entirely helpless and thus abandon all forms of personal merit to gain favor with God, we will never come to know and relish the grace that Paul speaks of here in this letter. So how does this happen? How does God, what does God do as he makes us alive? He forgives us, specifically by forgiving us all our trespasses, not just some, but all of our trespasses. And the means by which he did so was through the cross. He canceled the record of debt, we're told, that stood against us with its legal demands. It's one of the things that the law does. It comes And it shows us just how inadequate and how incapable and how dead we are. Many of us know what the crushing load of debt feels like. Whether it's student loans or mortgage or car loans or credit card. You, You know what that debt feels like until it's paid off, right? And then when it finally gets paid off, there's there's this sense of joy and freedom and Praise God that you can experience that. But listen, the the problem that we have here is that you and I have incurred a debt before God that will never be paid off. Just imagine if if you were told you're going to have this debt or you, you, you mortgage your house for a lifetime and you're never going to be out of debt. That'd be some way to live, wouldn't it? You got all this debt, you're never going to pay it off. Well, that's what we have before a holy God. We have, inc- we have incurred a debt that we will never pay off because we continue to add to it. Because of sin. And we stand condemned before God. But 
when Christ came and when Christ went to the cross, he took the record of debt that stood against us. Oftentimes in the ancient world, there would be a record of debt, a piece of paper that, that was that was given to, to state the debt that you had. And sometimes even when criminals were, were, were nailed to a cross and executed, there would be a record of their violations nailed to the cross with them stating the crimes that they had performed. And so there's this imagery Paul's picking up on here. And he says when Jesus comes, he dies on the cross and he takes the record of debt that stood against us and he nails it to the cross, dying in our place to remove the righteous judgment you and I deserved so that we could be forgiven. Listen, God doesn't just erase our debt with a delete button. He does erase our debt. But he doesn't just swoop in and say, okay, let's just forget about it. Let's have a fresh start. The beauty of what God has done for us in Christ is he actually pays our debt off through Christ. Jesus takes upon himself the full burden of our debt and paid it all. He paid the penalties that we had even incurred and he pays the debt in full, nailing it to the cross. Friends, this should give us great confidence and great assurance. If you're not a Christian, the way that God has acted to bring you from death to life is through the cross of Jesus Christ. If if you're not following Jesus, listen, you are incurring a debt you will never pay off. You you continue to try and you continue to try to obey your way and you you try to, to make things right between you and God and what's really happening is you're making it worse because God's standard is not good enough, it is perfection. And the longer you and I live, the longer you and I demonstrate just how imperfect we are, how flawed and jacked up we really are. You'll never pay that off. Miserable way to try to approach God. Friend, I'm telling you, you can find true joy and peace and freedom from that debt today if you'll simply quit looking to yourself and the ways of this world and look to Christ. He died on a cross and he paid it all. Look to him. Christians, There will be times and moments in your Christian life when you will feel like your life is a massive contradiction. You will look on one hand and you will see the beauty and power of Jesus in the gospel. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sin. He was raised in power and he's coming again. And you will say, yes, I believe every bit of that. I have trusted in that. That is my hope. And yet there will be moments in your life when you experience the overwhelming power of sin and the reality of ongoing corruption still festering in your heart, leading you at times to wonder, am I even a Christian? Brother and sister, it's at that moment you need to look well beyond yourself and you need to look to Christ. And repeat that wonderful verse. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Dear Christian, this is the truth in which you and I have. 
by faith. But no matter how intense sin is, the struggles you have are, we have a Savior that paid it all. We need to look to Him. We need to cling to that truth. And brothers and sisters, the forgiveness that we have is not just a one-time thing. As Luther said, Martin Luther said, it's an inexhaustible fountain. Speaking on the forgiveness of sin, Luther said, the fountain is inexhaustible. It never fails, no matter how much we draw from it. Even if we all dip from it without stopping, it cannot be emptied, but it remains a perennial fount, an unfathomable well, and an eternal fountain. So friend, take and drink of this fountain. You'll never exhaust it. Jesus came to die for our sin and to forgive us. It's a glorious, glorious gift of his grace. Not only do we have union with Christ, not only do we have uh, forgiveness, we also have victory in Christ. Look at verse 15. He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, you recall back to verse 8, where Paul urges the Colossians not to be taken captive by teachings that were humanly conceived or demonically influenced. Elemental spirits, he refers to them. And now here he gives the reason why that's not only needed, but how it can actually happen. I think sometimes Christians think, I can't, I can't. get out of this, this, this false teaching that's come my way. I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck there. I'm, I, I can't move on. And the, the truth of what this text is saying is, yes, you can. The reason that you and I can move forward and cling to the gospel and not be taken captive by other teachings is namely that Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He says he's triumphed over them. In ancient times, the, uh, an army in victory would, would lead its defeated enemies in a parade to openly shame them before the people. And that's the image that we get here, that as Christ died for us and as he was raised for us in victory, he's triumphing. He's declaring the victory that he has secured for us at the cross. It's at the cross that our salvation was achieved in the empty tomb that points to the fact that our victor is alive today as he has declared victory over sin, death, and hell once and for all. Friends, this is good news. This means that while there is a concerted effort by these rulers and authorities to deceive and to divert Christians, these rulers and authorities are powerless actually to undo us. Powerless. Satan and his demons love to accuse us, love to tempt us, love to try and persuade us. But in the end, they cannot overcome us because Christ has defeated them. Friends, we need the, to cling to that hope and that truth and that confidence that we know that Jesus is the winner. He's declared the victory. And so if you're a Christian in Sri Lanka this morning and your church has been blown up and people have died, you can rejoice because we know that that's not the final word. Christ has the final word. 
Christ has secured the victory. They're going to try to attack and try to assault. But listen, believer, you, you and I need this truth. Satan may bruise you. He may discourage you. He may even harm you. But listen, he can never destroy you. Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Brothers and sisters, even though we wrestle against the forces of evil, they cannot ultimately be victorious because Christ is victorious. Friends, let this text work in our hearts. This is my prayer. This text would work in our hearts an overwhelming sense of gratitude and confidence. You need not fear the attacks of the evil one. You need not be taken captive by the false gospels and the teachings of this world because you have everything you need in Jesus. He lived, he died, and he was raised so that you can have life. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you are no longer dead. You're alive. If you're in Christ, you're no longer condemned. You are forgiven. And friends, if you're in Christ, you no longer are defeated because Jesus has won the victory. This is our hope. There's no greater joy, there's no greater hope in the world than that. Let's celebrate that and let's live in that hope for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great hope that we have in Jesus we thank you that through Christ we have everything that we need. That it's in Christ that we've been united with him. Mysterious as that seems to us, Lord, it, it's just a beautiful picture of what we actually have, that we do not have a Savior that's far removed, but Lord, we have a Savior that has drawn near and has accepted us and has included us. And Lord, that we are participants in him and now he lives and dwells in us. Father, we thank you that it is forgiveness that we have at the cross. Lord, that our sins, not in part, but all, the whole, have been nailed to the cross. Have been, we have been forgiven by this great work. And Lord, through this wonderful work of Christ, we have victory. We have victory because we have a risen Savior. We have a living Savior who has conquered everything for our sake. So Lord, would you help us to cling tightly to that today? Would you help us to, to, to depend on that and not anything else? That we might find our hope, that we might find our joy in Jesus and in him alone. Father, we know that we could never do that on our own. We know that we could never achieve what we need in our own strength, but that Christ has achieved it all and that he will hold us fast and hold us firm to the end. Lord, we give you praise and we give you thanks for this great joy that's ours in Christ. Help us to cling to him today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.